victim. You have him in your sights. How do you feel? Truth now. Powerful. In control. Good. That's what the killer's feeling. I'm not angry or excited. You're calm, relaxed. Detached. Now you're getting it. You do your killing from a distance. You're cold, methodical. But why kill like this? If you want to know the answer, pull the trigger. Find out. Don't think about it. Do it. Do it. Welcome to Truck and Babble, Cycle Babble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and melon target practice. And I'm Elizabeth, ancient earth historian and student of humanoid psychology. Our mission is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth corrects my diagnoses of three infamous psychopaths from the canon. We must begin, of course, with the one and only Khan, Noonien Singh, from the original series' first season episode, Space Seed, which aired in 1967, was written by Carrie Wilbur and Gene L. Kuhn, and directed by Mark Daniels. The Enterprise encounters a rogue Earth ship, the SS Botany Bay, out of time and out of place. It's from the 1990s and shows signs of life. Hiya, Bobby. Hi, Ken. You want to go for a ride? Sure, Ken. Jump in. I'm a Bobby girl. In the Bobby world, life in plastic, it's fantastic. You can brush my hair, undress me everywhere. Imagination, life is your creation. Come on, Barbie, let's go party. I'm a Bobby girl. We get a brief outline of the eugenics wars, at least this canonical version of them, before Kirk decides to lead an away team to the Botany Bay to investigate. Your attempt to improve the race through selective breeding. Oh, now, wait a minute. Not our attempt, Mr. Spock. A group of ambitious scientists. I'm sure you know the type. Devoted to logic. Completely unemotional. Doctor, I would all be right, pleased. All right, gentlemen, as you were. He takes with him Bones, who we learn loathes the transporter, Scotty, and Lieutenant MacGyvers, an Earth historian. The quartet discover a collection of humans in stasis and inadvertently trigger the reanimation of their leader. The leader is played by Ricardo Montalban, meaning MacGyvers and her 1960s lady brains become quickly distracted by his rugged looks, bulging pectorals, and uh, Sikh ancestry. Moving along. Since he would die if they didn't, Kirk decides to break the leader out of his stasis pod and fully revive him. While he and his remarkable physiology recover in sickbay, Spock and Kirk do some historical digging. There's no record of the old ship, but its penal colony name piques Kirk's curiosity. After Kirk reprimands MacGyvers for being horny on the job, ironic that, the enhanced man finally awakens and instinctually takes McCoy as a hostage, but Bones' cool response manages to disarm him. Well, either choke me or cut my throat. Make up your mind. Where am I? You're it. You're in bed. Holding a knife at your doctor's throat. Answer my question. It would 
be most effective if you would cut the carotid artery just under the left ear. simply trying to avoid an argument. 72 of your life support canisters are still functioning. You will revive them. As soon as we reach Starbase 12. I see. And now. Khan is my name. For now, Kirk promises further investigation once they reach Starbase, but equips Khan with access to the ship's library to catch up. Meanwhile, Spock puts some things together. There was an uprising in 1993. Major historical events include the bombing of the World Trade Center, correction, the first bombing of the World Trade Center, the raid on Waco, Texas, the tsunami in Japan, and most insidious of all, the first sale of a Beanie Baby. Apparently, these events paled in comparison to this uprising. Would you estimate him to be a product of selected breeding? In 1993, a group of these young supermen did seize power simultaneously in over 40 nations. Well, they were hardly supermen. They were aggressive, arrogant. They began to battle among themselves. Because the scientists overlooked one fact, superior ability breeds superior ambition. Interesting, if true. They created a group of Alexanders, Napoleons. Their failure preluded the last dark age before first contact, but Spock learns that Khan and his compatriots' survival was kept secret from the beleaguered population. For now, Khan makes himself very comfortable aboard ship and preys upon MacGyver's growing obsession with it. Little by little, he reveals the terrifying shape of his character. While MacGyver's reacts with lust and devotion, the rest of the crew become increasingly disturbed by his megalomania. I intend to take this ship. Do you agree? Oh, please, Khan, don't ask me. Leave me, then. Go, I say. No. I promise. Do anything you ask. The command crew finally discover Khan's full biography, the last of the great dictators in the chaotic 1990s. Khan doesn't deny this truth and quite openly informs Kirk that he expects for him and his kind to take over the 23rd century as well as they had the 20th. With a little help from MacGyver's, he escapes back to the Botany Bay and frees the others from their stasis. He then returns to the Enterprise, wrests control from the engine room, and takes the command crew hostage. He forces Uhura Bones and the rest to watch him suffocate Kirk to death. He offers to spare Kirk if Spock joins him and uses the Enterprise to help him conquer a new world from which to launch further conquests. MacGyver's, mercurial as she's proven to be, double-crosses Khan and frees Kirk. This escalates to a fistfight between the two in all its unconvincing glory, which Kirk manages to win because, well, he's Kirk, damn it. With curious mercy... Kirk uses his command authority to deposit Khan and his men on an untamed world that they might be developed into a peaceful civilization. And MacGyver's is allowed to go with them instead of facing court-martial. Well, Elliot, I'm, I'm pleased to let you know that you didn't completely misdiagnose um, Khan or the other characters we'll be looking at today. They are indeed psychopaths. So, congratulations. <laughs> Does that mean I'm qualified now? 
Does that mean I get to be a doctor? Oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, for fictional characters, I will consider your preliminary diagnosis. How's All right, that? fantastic. So last episode, we talked about the neurodivergent characters from DS9. And it's interesting that that whole... Uh, trilogy of episodes, not to mention all of the stuff with Una and Strange New Worlds and this uh, just recently aired season, um, and a bunch of other places in Star Trek, including, of course, uh, Wrath of Khan, the movie that yeah. reuses this character, all based on this one little episode and this sort of offhanded um, idea about these eugenics wars that happened <laughs> in the canon sort of, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago in the in the 90s. I know, isn't it weird when the past catches up with the future? And yeah. It's like, wait, that's not what... Or the past catches up with the past? I don't know. Time is an illusion. Um, but I, I, yeah, I was reading a little bit about, you know, just on like the on the fandom page, you know, about how this was originally just going to be a standalone episode. Yeah. They like had no plans for anything after it. And yet this whole like cosmology got built out of it. And I, I love it when stuff like that happens. So as much as I love the serendipity of just a whole universe being, you know, built out of this throwaway episode, the sexism of this episode made me cringe so oh, much. Elizabeth, uh, I, I, and... I've tried, I know, I'm so sorry, I've tried to dole out the original series stuff in small enough doses that you're not exposed to the toxicity in huge, you know, portions, but it, it's unavoidable. It's It's part of the package. I know, and that's kind of been like my hang-up about actually watching the entire original series. It's one of the few series I haven't watched, um, and it's for that. And I was sitting, you know, watching this episode the other day, just like, especially that scene between MacGyvers and Kirk, when Kirk is like reprimanding her, essentially, for like unprofessional behavior, quote-unquote. Lieutenant, at any one time, the safety of this entire vessel might depend on the performance of a single crewman aboard. And the fact that you find a man strangely compelling to you personally. Not personally, Captain, professionally. My profession is historian, and ought to find a specimen from the past alive. I mean, the sheer delight of examining his mind. And men were more adventuresome then, bolder, more colorful. Yes, sir, I think they were. Good. If I can have honesty, it's easier to overlook mistakes. That's all. Yes, sir. Pity you wasted your life on command, Jim. You'd have made a fair psychologist. <laughs> I was like, no! That is the ab- no! That is the absolute opposite of what should be happening right now. End rant. But anyway, it it was it was telling. It was it was it was interesting for me, you know, from 2023 to look back. What 50 more than 50 years in the past now, which Almost is weird 60. to think about. Yeah. Weird. Oh my god. Um. But just like the very different social norms, like there, there, there were so many problematic dynamics in this episode, not including Khan and his <laughs> right. psychopathic behavior. There was also, there were other people who were doing problematic things. Um, and just to see it kind of just be so accepted and normalized was really kind of heartbreaking for me. And, and also a good reminder of like, okay, at least we've progressed from there like this would not be aired today like this is not something we'd be like see the social dynamic is fine you know we, right. we, we're past that point thankfully yeah, there's a weird uh i guess not weird for the time kirk does this occasionally but he's he's pretty dismissive of macgyver's even before he he hadn't quite met her or maybe he met her once at some point 
because he was like, Oh, I'll need somebody familiar with the late 20th century Earth. Here's a chance for that historian to do something for a change. What's her name? Uh, McGivers? Lieutenant McGivers. And it seems as though his um, dismissiveness of her person, her, her, her abilities as an officer, is based on her profession. That, that's sort of how it reads because mm. they, they, they're unspecific about her gender to begin with. And then as it moves along, it becomes more about the fact that she's a woman and getting all dewy about Khan and whatever. But it's connected to this idea that, oh, you're not a scientist in the um, in the way Spock is or you're not a military tactician or whatever. It's all in some ways even more toxic than it appears to be on, on first <laughs> at first glance. Yeah. Uh, however, I'm going to be a little bit defensive about some of it, not the sexism per se, but I'm going to be defensive about the episode in the respect that it is trying to um, create a broader picture of the effect that Khan has on the entire crew and Mm. say, you know, obviously he's physically enhanced, he's very strong, um, and he's mentally enhanced, he's smarter than Spock or or, or Kirk, at least on some some definitions of of what smart is. Um, But he also has enhanced charisma, I think is the implication here. And in MacGyver's, the woman in this heterosexual, you know, place that is the 1960s, uh, that how it affects her, where she loses all sense of objectivity um, and falls for him. But with the male characters, you know, except for Spock, notably, they're all pretty a- a- admiring of him. I must confess, gentlemen, I've always held a sneaking admiration for this one. He was the best of the tyrants, and the most dangerous. They were Superman in a sense. Stronger, braver, certainly more ambitious, more daring. Gentlemen, this romanticism about a ruthless dictator is... But Spock, we humans have a streak of barbarism in us. Appalling, but there, nevertheless. There were no massacres under his rule. And as little freedom. No wars until he was attacked. Gentlemen. (laughs) <laughs> We've triggered something, all right. Heartbeat's increasing. It's now passing eight beats per minute. There's some signs of respiration beginning. Could you be the leader? The leader. Lieutenant. Yes, sir. The leader was often set to revive first. This would allow him to decide whether the conditions warranted revival of the others. Heartbeat now approaching 40 per minute. The uh, respiration pattern is firming up. From the northern India area, I'd guess. Probably a Sikh. They're the most fantastic warriors. Virile, you know, and just so much more, and so sexy, and like, you know, modern future men were not like that at all. For me, that was a little bit of like the writers trying to be like, see, aren't we cool? You know? <laughs> right. Like, where, where are the hunks, according to Future Times? Uh-huh. Um, so I thought that was, I don't know, that was, that was something I caught. Um, but that, it's a really good point to say, like, hey, Khan, Khan really mesmerized the people around him. You know, like, had that kind of charisma. Women fell for him, men admired him. You know, it's kind of like, how do you attract the attention of various genders so that they will admire and respect you and one of those is romantic and the other is like wow yeah no i i can respect what he did and it is interesting that there's that kind of like magnetism that even though it goes against honestly their better judgment 
like he still has that kind of draw, which is a little scary, you know, to think that we can be, you know, conned in that way, you know. Conned. <laughs> ha ha ha. Well, it's it's interesting again because Bones actually make, make, makes the comparison between the original genetic engineers who decided. We learn later, by the way, are related to um, other Sung, uh, Data's creator, that whole family. Long story. Oh, um, okay. You don't have to watch more Picard. Sorry. Oh, now, wait a minute. Not our attempt, Mr. Spock. A group of ambitious scientists. I'm sure you know the type. Devoted to logic. Completely unemotional. Doctor, I would all be right, pleased. All right, it all leads to the sort of central question, the central thesis of the episode, which is spelled out, which is this idea of does superior ability yeah. breed superior ambition? And I guess my first question is, do you believe that to be true? I get that that is the premise that Star Trek kind of runs with, not only in this episode, but like in, in the other episodes that we've touched on, is this idea that these genetically modified humans, you know, have the potential for things that non-genetically modified humans don't. And that's why they're dangerous. Like, I get that that's kind of like the through line or the premise that the show uses. Yeah. I don't really think that holds up. Um, and, and part of why I think that is because I look at how non-genetically modified humans become psychopaths. And it's not, you know, they're... There's a biological component to everything because we are biological beings. Like, you can't separate that. But just because there's a biological component doesn't mean that that's where, that that's the first step in the sequence to something happening. You know, it's just, it's very intertwined. Hmm. And the way that's, the way that children are raised honestly has more to do with how they turn out, to, with how this kind of personality structure develops than than with the genetic predisposition of anything. You know, like, if I I think about Khan, you know, and yeah, he had all these genetic modifications and he was quote-unquote smarter and had a better body and, like, all these things. But he was probably also told from a really, really young age, you're better than everybody else, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, and that mm. sense of superiority, you know, that can, that can grow in any biological form the fact that he is enhanced in these other ways is not necessarily the thing which leads to his personality disordering it's the fact that he knows it and if you uh, you know plenty of people are told for whatever reason that you're special well we're all special whatever but <laughs> you know what i mean like you're told like oh you're gonna be great you come from an amazing family you have all of these gifts whatever like it can it can turn into this idea that like you deserve to have a higher station in society than other people and that is the seed that grows into yeah. this this disordering and like so many of these disorders essentially is what it is 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 a natural process gets interrupted and or distorted we all need a healthy sense of narcissism. Children have this kind of innate sense of grandiosity. I can do anything, you know, and it's when that gets too much and or doesn't get checked that you become a psychopath. This sense of like this infantile sense of grandiosity never gets 
cut or curated or just like tempered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Like this infantile sense of grandiosity never gets tempered, you know. But if you also squash it completely, then you think you're just a worthless piece of shit. And like there's no good I can do in the world and everyone else is better than me and I might as well just sit at home and do nothing. Do you see how the opposite of that is also bad? Well, yeah. You've always talked about balance being the essential sort of psychological um, state we should all be striving for. Ambivalence is great, (laughs) you know, and we'll talk about this more on On the Couch, but like a sense of confliction, a sense of grayness, that's what you want to go for. When When you're in black and white, either or thinking, that is an indication that like, oh, this is kind of a earlier stage of development that you haven't quite gotten past yet yeah you know is the is the non-punitive way i'm going to phrase that <laughs> well it's ironic for the supposedly you know hyper-developed uh khan and the other augments um there are two there are two main aspects to khan's character which are i suppose supposed to be the showcase for his psychopathy or whatever the the correct the, the most definitionally correct way to describe his personality is um and one i think clearly is the way he treats macgyvers which we talked a little bit about the the cringe fest which is her reaction to him but you know he is incredibly manipulative of her and 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 preys upon her her reactions to him he's violent with her very much so even for um the 60s right in the way these kind of gender dynamics play out uh and he has this carrot stick kind of um uh, what do you call it pavlovian like this this reward punishment dynamic with her um like you would uh, an animal basically i wanted to apologize they had no right to treat you that way quite understandable since i'm something of a mystery to them no mystery to me i know exactly who you are Leif Erikson, Richard the Lionheart in Napoleon. I don't know if you're going to like living in our time. Then I'll have to remold it to my liking. Please don't. Go. Or stay, but do it because it is what you wish to do. It further reinforces um, his psychopathic tendencies to me. This, this sense of using other people to achieve your means. Like they're, they're not really people to him. They're not other people who have agency or feelings or are subjects in their own right. You know, like subject object kind of dynamics. Like for him, other people are objects to be used, you know, and like what they think or feel doesn't register to him at all. And, um, you know, in a, in a way, a lot of how he treated MacGyver's reminded me, reminds me of how narcissists treat other people, where it's all or nothing, um, you know, like we're trying to control you, you are essentially an extension of me, and if you don't make me look good, you're dead to me. You know, like that that's starting to veer into like narcissistic kind of behaviors and patterns and like ways of using other people. Um, 
But for various reasons, I actually don't think he's a narcissist. Um, I wish I could give him that label, but I can't. But I I recognize those behaviors, you know. That's really interesting. Yeah, we're going to get back to definitions. Um, The other piece that I, I was curious about was Kirk's observation that Khan tends to frame all re- interactions between himself and other people in military terms, um, which yeah. is a short hand way of saying, well, one, it, it points to obviously a predisposition to violence, which makes sense if he's a violent dictator, but it's also this idea that all expressions, all words, all conversations, all um, revelations to other people are strategic, right? They're always yeah. about, how do I control your reaction? How do I control the room, the narrative, whatever? And there's never any actual just sort of genuine expression of the yeah. self. And that is how Khan sees things. And that stuff sounds really familiar to me in really horrible other ways, like just in terms of like yeah. uh, different um, fandoms and little sort of subsets of our current culture, this idea this hyper capitalist hyper sort of individualistic notion of always playing the game quote unquote to succeed as opposed to just sort of being a person and yeah i would love to be able to say (laughs) that that kind of mindset is genuinely psychopathic because that would validate my (laughs) my moral outrage at that kind of behavior Another potentially less charged way to think of psychopathic behavior is also as like antisocial behavior. Um, and, and kind of like you're hinting at, you know, like when you, when there's no genuine human interaction or revelation on from these people, when they think, when they're only thinking strategically and like, how can I get other people to react the way I want them to, to do what I want them to do. You know, when I, you know, there's no consideration of somebody else, of Mm -hmm. their feelings or their experience or what it might be like to be them. It's really just all about like, how do I, how do I use you to get what I want? You know, that sounds kind of antisocial if you think about it in the way of not that like, I hate people go away, but it's really like social and interpersonal relations are non-existent, you know, and and that is one of the key features of um, this kind of personality wounding, you know, and like, I'll I'll put it that way, like, most of the time when people develop these, like, these dysfunctional personality patterns, regardless of what it is, it stems back from a wound that essentially, like, this is what happens when your psychic structure is injured, you know, when something goes wrong. And in this case, what goes wrong is a failure of early attachment. You know, they never learn how to have relationships with other people in the same way that most people do. And the failure of that, of that ability to connect with somebody else, leads to not being able to think about anybody else except yourself and to have this lack of intimacy in your life.
Speaking of the 1990s, we turn to the 1996 episode of Voyager called Meld from the second season. It was written by Michael Sussman and Michael Piller and directed by Cliff Bull. After a look at a running subplot we don't need to worry about, we find Neelix at perhaps his most irritating, ostensibly doing his morale officer duty by noting that it's the season for a Vulcan holiday, while belittling the fact that Vulcans don't celebrate said holiday in the way Neelix thinks they should. Nice. Neelix is supposed to be really annoying in this scene, so yeah, good job. I will not rest until I see you smile. Then you will not rest. I don't suppose you've ever heard of the Vulcan Rumari. An ancient pagan festival. Full of barely clothed Vulcan men and women, covered in slippery rillin' grease, chasing one another. <laughs> that has not been observed for a millennium. Well, it's time to bring it back. That'll make for some cringy fan fiction. Tuvok is mercifully called away for a much less distressing situation. Taurus has discovered a corpse in a Jeffrey's tube. The EMH informs Tuvok that the crewman was definitely murdered, and the circumstances yield only one suspect, Lon Suter. I've just never been comfortable with Suter, that's all. It's not like he ever did anything wrong, it's just... As a Marquis, he did what he had to do a little too well. As in? As in killing Cardassians. Around us, he was the quietest, most unassuming guy you'll ever meet. Typical Betazoid. Kept to himself, I never knew much about him. In the Maquis, we didn't ask for resumes. We needed all the help we could get. A lot of us were doing what we were doing to protect our families. But Suter had his own reasons. I wish I could tell you what they were. In combat, there was something in his eyes. Sometimes I had to pull him back, stop him from going too far. And once or twice when I did, he looked at me with those cold eyes, and I just knew. He was this far away from killing me. It doesn't take too much forensic searching before Suter confesses to the crime. The more troubling issue, at least for Tuvok, is Suter's confessed motive for the murder. Why did you kill him, Mr. Suter? No reason. That is not a satisfactory answer. You must have had some motive. I didn't like the way he looked at me. A crime must have a logical purpose. Ah, yes, I see. How to close the case without understanding the logic of the crime. For a Vulcan, that would be a dilemma, wouldn't it? Obviously, it takes a certain personality type to be attracted to the life of an outlaw. Don't you believe his confession, Tuvok? In fact, I do. Nevertheless. My job is not finished until I determine a motive. Tuvok, however, cannot accept this and attempts to prod a better explanation out of Suter in the brig. What's even more frustrating is Suter's lack of emotion over the incident. Vulcans objectify other cultures. Whatever actions they take, which have no logical purpose, must be the result of a lack of emotional discipline. If objectifiable emotions are not responsible for an otherwise illogical crime, how can Tuvok possibly accept the situation? Suter further subverts Tuvok's expectations by volunteering to be executed for his crime. As discussed in our episode on Vengeance, number 24 if you're in the archives, the Federation doesn't execute people. At an impasse, Tuvok opts to mind meld with Suter. Tuvok reports his findings to Janeway, noticeably agitated after the experience. He is a man with an incredibly violent nature, living in an environment without any outlet to express it. I am surprised he was able to maintain his self-control for as long as he did. 
I guess in his earlier life, he always found ways to release those impulses, like volunteering for the Maquis. So they decided to coop him up indefinitely. In seriousness, executing him as barbaric and eternal confinement in his decorated cage is certainly a harsh enough punishment. Tuvok, however, puts capital punishment on the table, which strikes Janeway as out of character. She wonders what side effects may be lingering within her old friend and orders him to mind his own needs in all of this. So Tuvok heads back to the mess hall for more punishment from the morale officer. Ethan Phillips is extraordinarily talented at playing an insufferable irritant, going so far as to shove his finger in Tuvok's mouth to prompt a smile. Then he threatens to sing, which sends Tuvok into a homicidal rage, and what do you know, Neelix is strangled to death. This is a holodeck simulation, of course, but the implications are chilling. Suter, on the other hand, finds himself much more centered after the meld, a temporary side effect as Tuvok notes. The plan moving forward is to keep Suter confined, but allow him to exercise his violent demons on the holodeck. Holographic violence does not give the same sensation as the real thing. I've tried it. It's attractive, isn't it? Attractive? Violence. On the contrary. I find it disturbing. Maybe because it doesn't require logic. Perhaps that's why it's so liberating. Ironic, isn't it? that I can share with you of all people what I have hidden from everyone all my life. Can we do it again, Tuvok? Again? Melt. Tuvok recognizes that this is probably a bad idea. Feeling himself slip away, Tuvok retreats to his quarters, erects a force field, and deletes his security codes. Janeway is summoned to his quarters by the computer, and she arrives to find the place completely trashed by the heaping mass of quiet rage which used to be her security chief. He's taken to sickbay, where the EMH notes a compatibility issue between the Betazoid suitor and Vulcan telepathy. There's a straightforward treatment, essentially shocking his system by temporarily removing his Vulcan emotional repression. In his state, he takes the opportunity to berate Janeway for her choice of punishment regarding suitor. Later, Tuvok escapes sickbay, intent on executing Suter himself. He attempts the meld again, which may kill them both, it seems, but in the end, Tuvok finds himself unable to go through with it and collapses. The EMH confirms that this is a clear sign that Tuvok is recovering, and he and Janeway make up, while Suter is filed away to be dealt with another day. Rewatching this episode when they were talking about how, oh, him being locked in his quarters for the rest of the trip didn't seem like good enough punishment. And all of us post-COVID and quarantine, <laughs> we're like, no, I get why that would suck. You Good know? point. I didn't even make that yeah. connection. I think it's the right sort of balance. I mean, the prospect here is 70 years of, or probably the rest of his life, right? Of just being stuck in one yeah. room. I mean, that's that's pretty freaking harsh. Um, yeah. And I think a reasonable... Uh, well, I mean, the idea here is that the Federation is going to... Um, even though he is a violent psychopathic murderer, uh, he is still someone eligible for rehabilitation, if, if it's possible. They're at least going to try, even even in the dire circumstance that they're in, being stranded all alone on the Delta Quadrant. And I like seeing that in my Star Trek. Yeah, I think the episode also hinted to the possibility of rehabilitation and change, you know, which I would, I, I thought that was a really subtle, comforting arc to see. I'll put it that way. You know, when, when values, even when they're hard, you know, still show the potential in each other. Yeah. 
So I'd like to ask you, I, I laughed out loud when um, Tuvok goes to ask the doctor. Doctor, is it possible that Mr. Souter is psychotic? I doubt it. Kess, call up his genetic profile. The neurogenetic markers are normal. There's no tendency toward bipolar disorder. So he's not insane per se. What do the elevated norepinephrine levels suggest? Aggressive, even violent tendencies. Why didn't you report this immediately after your examination, Doctor? These readings are not significantly different from those of the other Maquis crewmen. I would think that psychopathy would be something um, you would have to have a more nuanced <laughs> a diagnosis of than just looking at a picture, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Are you using the word psychotic intentionally? I believe that's the word Tuvok used. Okay. I find that interesting because being a psychopath is different from being psychotic. Like those are two different things. Okay. I want to save that conversation for a little later when we go over like different like um, okay. levels of personality development and then a different axis of personality organization. Um, but for now, let's just say we're looking at psychopathic violent tendencies, which is different from psychotic. And then okay. can I answer your question a little later? Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, great. Like I said before, there's going to be a biological component to all of this psychic phenomenon because we have bodies. You know, this is kind of like the, this is how we show up in the world and there's going to be correlates. And so you can look at the uh, brain scans of people who have, of, of psychopaths compared to normal, quote unquote, not disturbed people, you know, and there's are going to be differences in brain activity. Same thing if you were going to look at a psychotic person, the brain scan between a psychotic person and a psychopathic person are also going to be different. That's mm. part of why they're not the same thing. So I want to say, yes, you can look at the brain scan. And like, I think that would be one piece of evidence uh, to like consider a holistic like labeling of someone's um, personality patterns and structure. It's but it doesn't like it doesn't start there, you know. It doesn't always start there. And for me, this episode I think really centered around this different uh, an interesting question about control, you know. And like, is the inability to control violent impulses an illness, you know? Mm -hmm. Because, like, they're saying, like, well, we all have these violent tendencies. You know, that's the show's premise. But not everybody can control it. And when you can't control it, that's what turns you into a psychopath. Which I'm like, eh, that hits it to 70% 70, 70 to me. You know, I don't think it's all just a matter of control. But, um, like, being able to control those impulses. But I do think it's true that we all have the potential for violence, you know, we did grow out of, you know, we are predators, you know, yeah. like we, we are animals. Like we have, we have to kill to survive in a mm -hmm. really, really rudimentary way. We kill animals, you know, um, we kill if we're threatened, you know, our, like our species has a biological drive to survive by almost any means necessary. And so like, there's that potential in everybody. It's, and it's when, when and how does that impulse get distorted and like you know when is it overly amplified and when is it you are being controlled by this power that feels beyond you versus you're able to say like i feel this and i'm not going to do anything about it you know like that that to me is a really interesting question yeah uh 
It's a good point you bring up about killing animals because so Vulcans who, of course, as we've talked about many times, have emotions which are at their core far stronger, we, we assume, than human emotions, um, which is a re the reason they've chosen to suppress them. Um, and one of the consequences of that is that Vulcans are culturally vegetarian. I don't know if you knew that, but they don't, oh, they, don't they intentionally don't kill animals unless they absolutely have to, but certainly less than, than we do. Um, although in the Federation, it's questionable. It's possible all meat is just synthetic. We no longer enslave animals for food purposes. But we have seen humans eat meat. You've seen something as fresh and tasty as meat, but inorganically materialized out of patterns used by our transporters. Again, yeah. other conversation, but it's just it, it, culturally speaking, the fact that they just that they don't eat animals. It's like a, a way of them counterbalancing that even stronger sort of animalistic predator instinct with an even mm -hmm. a more heightened control um, in in having that be a cultural practice. But speaking of killing, um, we should talk about Tuvok's <laughs> the way he sort of gets over the the threshold here of figuring out that there's something wrong with him. Um, which is to subject himself to the most annoying version of Neelix he can think of. What must I do to convince you to stop? Come on, just a little itty bitty smile. Just let the mouth curl a little there. <laughs> yeah, there's an old Talaxian song my mother used to sing me as a child. I'm going to sing it to you every day from now on. It goes... I, I forgot that scene happened, and so I'm watching it being like, wow, Neelix is being even more annoying than usual. You know, to the point where I was like, dude, he said no, consent and boundaries. Back off. And then to see Tuvok strangle him, I just was like, wow, what's happening? And then the hologram. And I was like, okay, that was an emotional roller coaster. Is the short version of yeah. my experience. Um, so wait, you thought that was a test? Because I was wondering if Tuvok was doing that to blow off steam. Well, it's funny because those are the only two possibilities. It's not. I think the episode is not totally uh, committed to either one. I think it's more fun to be ambiguous. So either, as you say, it's a way. Uh, you know, two. I thought about thought about. Okay, I have this violent, murdering tendencies floating around in my brain thanks to this mind melt. How do I best want to get rid of that? Oh, I'm going to murder Neelix. <laughs> or he thought to himself, "What is the thing which is going to send me into a homicidal rage?" Oh, it's Neelix talking about himself or whatever. Um, there's also this meta textual element to it, which I think is funny in the experience of watching it. And it's, it's, I, I, it's fun that you didn't remember that scene being in the episode, because if you're watching it and don't realize that it's a holo, uh, um, holographic uh, recreation at first, uh, you're like, yeah, Neelix, you're being even more annoying than usual. That's odd, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's fake. It's just, boy, yeah. you're being extra harsh. And then you see him strangle him. And what is your reaction as an audience member to that? On the one hand, you're like, oh, that's horrifying. And it is. But on the other hand, you're like, God, I would do the same thing. There's a little bit of that, right? There's a little bit of that for you, I'm hearing. <laughs> I'm just brave enough to admit it. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, there's a lot in that scene. And I, and I think the writers do a really good job of making it ambiguous. You know, like it's, it's intentionally ambiguous so that you get a bunch of these different reactions so that you can see it playing out in different levels of context and reality. If that had been real. Oh, okay, it's not real. And then all the different implications of that. Like it, it's, it's an interesting thought experiment. 
And, you know, for me watching, for me, I didn't have so much of the like, yay, um, Neelix is dead reaction of like, I would do that too. Um, For me, that was more of like, oh no, Tuvok, like there's something very wrong, you know, like that, like that crossed a line, you know? And so to me, to me, it revealed that like Tuvok was affected by this way more than he thought he would be, which I, I think is an also interesting metaphor of like, we think that we can withstand these really intense quote unquote primal feelings. And then we realize that like, Oh no, we're a tiny boat on this giant ocean and we're getting tossed around by these waves. Like we don't have as much control as we think we do over how our bodies show up in the world. You know, I I find that interesting. Yeah. It's, it's especially seeing Tuvok, you know, the doctor is able to shut down his emotional control, which that's kind of amazing that you can do that, but leaving that aside. That's so convenient, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, that's the treatment. Um, but I, I do love the the detail in terms of the world building here that Tuvok's attraction to capital punishment as being a solution here is a result of him having this this problem, this this, this dysfunction, yeah. this mental illness that um, is um, a part of him because of the result of this meld. And that the characters recognize that he, what he says about like he is prepared to die for his crime an execution you're not seriously suggesting that we I only mention it because of the extenuating circumstances and because he feels it would be an appropriate punishment I don't I prefer to rehabilitate him not to end his life We'll confine him to quarters. Those are things that a contemporary human today would say, many, many would say, um, in defense yeah. of capital punishment, if not even more to, to, to my sensibilities, um, unpleasant things. And yet in the context of the Federation, this is seen as like, oh, you're mentally ill if you believe this. Okay, let's get you treatment. I, I, I like that as a as tying things together. I, I do too, you know, and, and I think Suter like really names that later on in the episode. And calling it that makes it more comfortable for you. I will take no comfort in this. A most logical use of violence to punish the violent. We both know that I am prepared to die, but are you prepared to kill? It needs to be done. To release your violent impulses? To serve justice. Justice or vengeance. Understand one thing, Tuvok. I can promise you this will not silence your demons. If you can't control the violence, the violence controls you. Be prepared to yield your entire being to it. To sacrifice your place in civilized life for you will no longer be a part of it and there's no return. It's the same impulse, but somehow you make it acceptable if you call this an ex- execution. Okay, yeah. interesting. And like, I, I really like that he just calls it out in that way. I think it's really accurate. You know, it's like when you really get down to like a fu- the fundamental levels of impulse and experience, like what is the difference between murder and execution? Yeah. A couple of the stray observations uh the first one is so again the doctor takes away Tuvok's ability to control his emotions temporarily because that's part of this treatment and I like 
you know, even though it is an episodic show and Chuak's going to be fine next week, there is still at least metaphorically speaking, this, this, this is a good um, message about treating mental illness um, and therapy in that it, the effects are not usually or almost ever immediate. Like there's this yeah. uh, time delay that needs to happen. It's like, yes, we're going to fix you, but it's going to, there's going to be this um, journey that you're going to go on. It's not just going to happen for you. Yeah. I, I find that really optimistic and like realistic as well. In addition to the idea, like it's often going to get worse before it gets better, mm. which a lot of people feel like I'm getting worse after I started therapy. It's like, Yes, that's part of it. Mm. Because, like, the you know, before therapy, you did things a certain way. They ultimately weren't working for you, but they did enough, you know. And then you start therapy, and you start to change the way you do things. So, in a way, it's a way, like, you have to kind of go backward in order to go forward. It's mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to dismantle the things that weren't really working for you, including the positives you were getting from that. You have to lose those in order to rebuild something that's going to work better for you moving forward. And, and I think therapists could do a better job of warning people that that's the process. You know, it doesn't mean there's something wrong when you're not coping as well as you were. It, it, it often like you kind of have to you have to let go of the old scaffolding before you can build a new one. It's a really good point. Um, the the other really sort of subtle bit of the plot here that I that I appreciated is. Uh, it's mentioned in passing that Suter is a Betazoid. Um, and he doesn't, he's not a typical Betazoid, though, right? Like our, our most familiar character, of course, is Troy, who's half Betazoid. Um, and he's our therapist, our most famous Star Trek therapist. Uh, and her Betazoid biology gives her um, unusually heightened empathy, right? To the point where she's empathic. Um, and Suter. Not only can he not do telepathy like uh, like Lexwana Troy, for example, but he also cannot feel other people's emotions at all. I don't seem to feel anything at all. Most Betazoids can sense other people's emotions. I can't even sense my own. There's something in the implication there of this person who is supposed to be naturally empathetic, having that cut off for for whatever reason and turning into a psychopath. I I mean, that's like a really good metaphor for how it works for humans too. You know, non-genetically modified, non-alien people. Um, You know, like there, there's a really good argument to be made that like humans are biologically built as social creatures like we, there's a lot of arguments that we like, we need other people to survive, not just in a like pooling your resources kind of way, but like our own like psychological, emotional well-being requires attachment to other people. And, and empathy is part of how we have evolved as a species. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it's a whole, there's a, it's fascinating to kind of look at the, psychological biological foundations of empathy and how we're able to relate to other people and it's part of what makes us human you Mm -hmm. know is the argument of like how that we are social creatures by biology and like this is just how we're built and this is what it means to be human and it's really fascinating when that mechanism breaks you know because that's really what's happening in 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 
when you with psychopathic tendencies and personalities there's something about that innate mechanism that is is hardwired in most people for social connection and interaction that when that person doesn't have it they move through the world in a completely different way than the rest of us and it can feel disturbing to people who have that sense of empathy intact who have that sense of social like reciprocity intact because it's like you're breaking all these rules that i thought were a given and here's an example of it being not you know and, and so for me like the fact that he's a betazoid that doesn't have these betazoid tendencies really good metaphor for how this actually works it's like there's something there's something in the psychological biological foundation that is different and it's it's just and it can feel very disturbing crewman Suter to the bridge Suter, what are you doing with the combat you better get down here chakote lieutenant tuvok needs help to me that is a radical shift for sutter to be able to think about what it must be like to be another person and what they need like that is the fundamental thing missing in it, when someone is psychopathic or antisocial, they're missing the ability to empathize or put themselves in another person's shoes. And the fact that Sutter can do that at the end, I think is a really, really helpful message. Like, look, this is possible. Like re rehabilitation is possible. It's possible to shift this, you know, like, you know, the mind meld was how it happened in the episode, but like you can shift it. The way Star Trek uses science fiction, like the, 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 the tropes of science fiction is, specific in this particular way where it always very often the science of star trek is questionable as it is in this episode um this idea that you can short short circuit all of these necessary steps to get from point a to point b so that we tie in all the plot points within the 40 minutes or whatever it is of an episode yeah but when it's done right as i think it is here it is about telling a broader story through the implications of how this works that like the science fiction totally. is, a, is a way to get through a whole life cycle in some cases um that is important to be able to try to hold that perspective when applying those messages to our own lives because it's hard to see that arc um, when it's playing out in real time The Gay 90s also gave us our DS9 for this week. Season 7's Field of Fire, written by Robert Hewitt Wolf and directed by Tony Dow. It aired in 1999. Fully embracing the late series war idiom, many of the Starfleet crew toast a very young pilot who has earned himself several drinks at Quarks for his bravery. Too many drinks, as it turns out, as Esri has to walk him to his quarters. The next morning, she's horrified to learn he was murdered during the night. Forensics indicate being shot by a bullet instead of a phaser, and Cisco, being the kind of man he is, immediately draws from memory knowledge of a prototype weapon, which is the culprit. Did you ever hear of a TR-116 rifle? It was a prototype, developed by Starfleet Security to operate in energy-dampening fields or radiogenic environments. That's right. Anywhere where a normal phaser would be useless. If I'm not mistaken, the TR-116 rifle fired a chemically propelled titanium bullet. You say a prototype. Were they ever mass-produced? No. 
Starfleet abandoned the TR-116 in favor of regenerative phasers. That doesn't mean the killer couldn't have gotten hold of the rifle's replication patterns. Esri struggles with this senseless murder, so much so that she retcons her own backstory. See, one of Dax's previous hosts was a musician called Joran, whom we learned in Season 3 killed a man, causing a controversy amongst the Trill. Well, Esri now characterizes Joran as a true psychopath and kicks his kill count up to three. On cue, Joran's personality confronts her in a dream and urges her to perform a hitherto unheard of Trill rite, which would allow him to help her solve the murder. Adding pressure, Esri awakens to learn that an identical murder has occurred with the magic bullet. O'Brien, meanwhile, deduces how the killer has managed their spree. I attached a microtransporter to this TR-116. When I fired, the bullet was beamed into the room a few centimeters away from the melon. Where it continued its trajectory. So if the killer had a similar transporter device, that would explain the lack of powder burns on the victims. And by using an exographic targeting sensor, he was able to scan through the bulkheads. So he could have been firing from anywhere on the station. Despite her reservations, Sisko assigns Esri the task of using forensic psychology to help narrow down a suspect. This proves insufficient, and so Esri goes through with the ritual allowing Duran to emerge as a kind of imaginary friend. He encourages her to get into the killer's frame of mind, hold the magic rifle, spy on people in their quarters, etc. It's unclear whether Duran is helping the investigation, but his efforts with her are causing erratic behavior. She nearly stabs a man who was running from Odo, Sisko lets her remain on the case since she fails to disclose the influence of her imaginary friend, and before long, a third victim is found. As reason Duran's breakthrough is... It's the pictures. He's laughing. She's laughing. That's what the victims have in common. Pictures of laughing faces. A killer who hates laughter, who hates emotion. A Vulcan. Nothing like 24th century racial profiling. She suspects that this Vulcan has been traumatized. The plot gods conspire to put a Vulcan, whom Duran is certain is the killer, right on the lift with Esri. She insists on finding some harder evidence for Odo, leading to the discovery of the probable trauma. The destruction of a ship and crew with whom he served for more than 10 years. With Duran in her ear, Esri straps on the magic rifle and accompanying visual scanner and finds that the Vulcan is researching her, probably targeting her as his next victim. The two square off, but she manages to shoot him first. She confronts the wounded killer, who cites the logic of his actions. Duran tries to get her to follow through with her psychotic journey and kill the Vulcan, but she stands down and calls for Odo to arrest him. Duran is put back in his place within the Dax psyche. The end. Uh, so your, uh, as I recall, uh, beginning the final leg of your training as a as a full therapist, Elizabeth. I know. Yeah, I I've, I'm in my last not even full year. So I, I, I wrap up in about six to nine months, which is terrifying. <laughs> it's great. It's great. It's going to be great. No, what am I doing? I'm proud of you. That's amazing. I am curious whether you've had any forensic psychology uh, training yet. No, I have not. Yeah. I'm doing a master's level, um, and I don't know any other master's people who have had that. So, okay. So, who takes forensic psychology um, in like our? Because that's a real thing. It's not just made up for Star Trek. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, no. Of all the things that are made up for Star Trek, this one is not. Um, 
So uh, you typically want to get a PhD, um, you, sometimes a PsyD. You need a doctorate is the short version if you want to work as a forensic psychologist. Um, it requires a higher higher level of training. And even mm-hmm. then, um, you it, if you are really interested in doing that work, you probably want to go to a, a specific forensic psychology program, you know, one that really, really focuses on that. No, thank you. I was just sort of, yeah, like I said, cu- curious about that. Um, yeah other world building aspects that I enjoyed from this episode um, were the notion. So you remember how she, uh, Esri almost stabs a man who was running from Odo. Uh, and it turns yeah. out that Bertram didn't kill anyone. Then why was the security team chasing him? Because a month ago he accessed the replicator patterns on TR 116 without authorization. Sounds guilty to me. Why would he replicate a rifle unless he was going to use it? Because he collects weapons. Federation Klingon Cardassian. What a coincidence. That doesn't rule him out as a suspect. True, but the fact that he was on Bajor when the first murder occurred does. And that's just so wonderfully utopian (laughs) compared to our current... Kind of gun-obsessed culture, at least here in the United States. Yeah, it's kind of like back with Tuvok and DS9. Like the fact that you would even suggest capital punishment means like, oh, whoa, are you okay? Like that's mm-hmm. that's not normal. You know, I keep I keep thinking about the similarities between these three episodes, and and control is a theme that we've seen come up again and again and again. This sense of omnipotence, the sense of control, this sense of detachment. You know, especially with this Vulcan. Um, I do not have personal resonance about the experience of owning a gun. I don't own a gun. I think I'm a little uncomfortable with the idea of having one in my home. That's just where I land. But if I can imagine what it must be like to fire a gun, like, yeah, I do. I bet that does feel really powerful, you know? Mm -hmm. And and that sense of power and of control and of safety... If people lack that in their lives, having a place where you can feel it, I, I get the appeal of that, you know? Well, it's certainly something that Duran um, takes advantage of is, you know, Esri yeah. is going through this point of, in her one season arc that she gets um, here where she's trying to integrate her, her herself, her trill self, uh, you know, she's got all of her training as a psychologist and as a therapist is pre-joining, right? Yeah. And yet she has all these memories of the Daxes down the line, including Duran. And uh, she's feeling, I would assume, pretty out of control. And so there's an appeal there. How do you feel? Truth now. Powerful. In control. Good. That's what the killer's feeling. I'm not angry. We're excited. You're calm, relaxed. Detached. Without having to overthink it, which she's prone to do. And that's really appealing to her in her situation. The way Duran really frames it is about kind of like, isn't this an experience you want to have? Yeah. You know, like, don't you want to know what this feels like? You know, and, and I could, I, in my own, like, you know, empathetic way, felt the appeal of that, of wanting, like, what does it feel if I just cross this line, you know? But but that's also a symptom of the pathology right there, which is, like, you're framing it in terms of personal experience, and the impact it's mm-hmm. going to have on the other person is not no, that makes sense. in there at all. Um, so one of the intentions of the, of the writer, 
Robert Wolf of in this episode was you know he uses he just it decides that the Vulcan is the killer here and again the 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 leap in logic that Esri has to like oh smiling people Vulcan hates emotions insane I mean yeah no that was just that was so fast it just was like how like oh no we have twenty minutes wrap it up yeah you know insane however the intent yeah. behind having it be a Vulcan. Um, is this idea that the war is become so traumatizing that even Vulcans are um, falling victim to, uh, you know, these kinds of, it's kind of PTSD, I guess you'd call it. I, I found his last line, uh, Chulak is the Vulcan's name, I found his last line about... Tell me, why did you do it? Because logic demanded it. Which is such yeah. a Vulcan line, right? Uh, pretty chilling, because of the sincerity and going on in his mind. Do you know what I mean? Like there's something about like, yeah. Oh, you've, you've taken the rhetoric and the traditions and the sort of familiar trappings of this species that we in Star Trek, we've come to admire, you know, all the way back to Spock and turned it into this really horribly distorted mirror image of, yeah. what logic is supposed to be in the Star Trek universe. Well, totally. And I think that harkens back to this dysfunction that we're seeing. You know, it's like when this fundamental structure of the species gets distorted, gets dysfunctional, these, the, like, look at what can happen. You know, when a Betazoid, like, can't empathize, or when a human, you know, has a superiority complex, you know, or when a Vulcan, when their logic get so distorted that it becomes a delusion mm. you know like these are all these are all signs of something we call it dysfunction as in like this isn't working the way it should you know and like there's a lot of social psychological constructs in that but you know as far as we've evolved to be a human species and in order to have society and civilization we've realized that we have to abide within a certain set of rules you know one of which is not kill each other in order to have a society mm. you have to you know live within certain con confines yeah. and when people go outside those confines we call it there's something wrong with you you know um but I, I find that really interesting, you know, like that this Vulcan, his logic has become so distorted, it's a delusion, you know. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, that that is finally when you're starting to slip into psychosis, when like the the line between reality and not is is very, very hard to see. You know, a lot of times people defer to, quote unquote, common sense to justify, well, everything, <laughs> to justify bigotry, to justify um, unjust laws, to justify maybe even some things which are, um, let's say, good, uh, good practices, but for which they haven't been able to actually justify in a real way. They'll just say, well, it just, it just feels right. It just fits in yeah. with my prescription of the way I, I, I move through the world um, and how at least to my way of thinking, how dangerous that is, even for a species as uh, intellectually rigorous as the Vulcans to become attached to the way they do things as opposed to the why they do things, um, where you can fall into this trap of 
feeling like you're going through the motions of logic and actually, as you say, deluding yourself to the point of being a murderer of your own people. You can use logic to justify almost anything. That's its power. And its flaw. From now on, bring your logic to me. Earlier, we were talking about the difference between psychosis and um, being a psychopath. And um, I want to I wanna finally answer that question for you. You good? Great. It's hard with all these Greek prefixes. It's like, they, are. <laughs> they all sound the same. Please enlighten yeah. me. So I guess I just want to preface it by saying this is a very psychoanalytic, psychodynamic orientation of understanding this um so that's like the theoretical orientation of which i'm going to answer this question and also of like the school and the training that i'm getting so this is a version of an answer it's not the version of the answer is what i'm trying to say and also i feel like it took me about a year and a half of like being told this information before it finally started to like make sense to me so if this doesn't make sense to you that's fine <laughs> you got Give five minutes to edify us elizabeth go I got, oh man, oh man, let's see if I can do it. All right, so so there are two axes that we need to consider when we're trying to figure out the psychological functioning of a person, especially when it comes into dysfunction or pathology and then quote unquote normal functioning. And the, the first axis is personality structure. And there's three, there's three le- layers of that. The bottom one is called, is psychotic. And that is essentially when the difference between your outer life and your inner life is blurred. Like there is no difference, hmm. essentially. So, um, you know, we talk about psychology um, and, and the root word of that is psyche, which often is translated to like soul, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in a rudimentary way. But you can also think of psyche as essentially the psychic backdrop on which all conscious life is drawn from. You know, you've heard of like the collective unconscious, you know, you know, like that it's that thing. The psyche, the psyche is something transpersonal that all people share, all living beings share. Like psyche, psyche exists. It's like people are a part of psyche, you know, like psyche is bigger than we are. I did not interrupt you, but just to call back to what we had talked about before we talked about this um, in our uh, uh, resurrection episode where yeah. the uh, the romantics the the artistic romantics had stumbled across some of this sort of east um east asian uh philosophy yeah. and reinterpreted it for themselves in this way through the lens of greek myths which of course they were uh, familiar with again and this idea of the numinous space that as you say like the the idea the, the platonic plane whatever you want to call it where when one is in a heightened psychological state for example asleep dreaming right um or engaged with art with music you are in that space so just to be really really clear when you say the psyche that is when you say transpersonal you mean um it is one (laughs) it is one psyche it is that we get to share not that each 
individual person has a psyche. Is that right? I mean, it's both. Everyone has their psyche and we belong to a bigger psyche. I mean, like this, this is a huge topic that I'm not going to be able to like fully articulate or like elucidate right now. Um, I'm just trying to set the structure for like why we call it psychosis. And, and one of the things that helps define psychosis is essentially like human perception is very filtered if it's going correctly, you know, like we, we really have filters on all the stimuli that is coming to us. And, and part of that filter is just how we stay sane. And psychosis is when that filter isn't there and you're getting all the stimuli all at once, um, both inner and outer, and you can't organize it. And so reality, reality is so much more complex. Your experience of reality is so much more complex and chaotic and mystifying and makes no sense. And you basically can't integrate or organize anything. You know, it's like you see a picture of a fish and you don't see a fish. Like, Mm. Like our ability to kind of take stimuli and group it is one of those filtering mechanisms that most people have. And when, you, when you're psychotic, you lack that filtering. You're kind of getting everything and you can't organize it or filter it at all. And so this, the difference between outer reality and your inner reality like doesn't exist. It's all happening at once and you can't make heads or tails of it. That's what it means to be psychotic. Here's the terrifying thing. We're all born psychotic. Okay. Babies are psychotic. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Through healthy, normal human development, we become at what's called best neurotic. <laughs> you know? <laughs> wow. Neurotic is what you're hoping for. <laughs> um, what a... And that word is very, that word is very loaded today. Yeah. But essentially neurotic means you're like, uh, like I, I can kind of see where I, fu- where I fucked up and like where I could have done better, but I was feeling this way or it's, it's that ability to see gray is being neurotic is being able to see the complexity to be able like the yes. And the, you know, I did this terrible thing, but I'm not a terrible person, though I feel really guilty about it and I'm trying to reconcile it. That's neurotic. Like that's where you want to be. And that's the top level of um, organization. That That's where like you move, you can move from the psychotic state to being neurotic where like all that stuff is still happening underneath it, but it's filtered and it's organized and you can handle it. And in between those two stages is what we call borderline, which is also a personality structure and, you know, its own thing. And we call it borderline because essentially it exists in between psychosis and neurosis, you know? So it's this in-between stage where you don't have full-blown psychosis, where like you're kind of in reality, but there's some fundamental structure that's like not quite in place that lets you move into being a, um, a functional neurotic human being. So those are the three levels of organizational <laughs> of personality organization. So you can think mm-hmm. of, like you can think of them stacked one on top of the other. You've talked a bit before about the prescribed sort of maturing cycle um, when normally, to, to use another loaded word, uh, yeah. does that transition happen for, for humans? 
I want to say seven <laughs> um, okay. because so much of your psychological well-being, basically the foundations of it are set by the time you're seven. You know, some people could even say earlier, like three or four, like early childhood is a really important time for kind of these like neurological, biological, psychological structures to be grounded. And so, if, and if you don't have them by age seven, it's really hard. Like you basically can't rebuild it. Like you can build on mm -hmm. top of it, but that foundation is set. Um, and that's not to say that there's a lot of, like there still is a lot of development that needs to happen in like adolescence and early adulthood. But I think the fundamental structures need to be in place by the time you're seven. Is it also fair to say that people can regress to that stage? Yeah, you can. Okay. Yeah. So, and that presumably is the result of trauma. Usually. Of some sort. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. almost, it, there's almost always trauma. So, anyway, that's one axis. The other axis is personality structure. And that's where you start to get psychopathic, um, histrionic, depressive antisocial, um, um, narcissistic, like basically, and basically those types of personalities can appear at each of those three levels, you know? Mm. So for example, Khan, I would say is a neurotic psychopath. He is neurotic. Yeah. He's very high functioning. Well, uh -huh. it's so, you know, I've seen one episode, <laughs> you know, like I haven't done a big study on Khan, but like he's, He's like maybe low neurotic, high borderline psychopath. Each of you in turn will go in there. Die while the others watch. Whereas Suter, you know, he has a lot of like paranoid structures in there as well. Um, he, he and Khan are actually, you know, are, are slightly different flavors of the same thing. There was practically no blood. I was surprised at that. I figured that the EPS conduit was the easiest way to dispose of the body, but I must have damaged one of the circuits when I put him inside. Whereas um, Chulak, I think he is like right at the psychotic level of um, being a psychopath, you know, because like, he's starting to go into that delusional like realm where inner and re outer reality are very blurred. All Vulcans distrust emotions, but they don't go around killing people for smiling. This one does. Something happened to him. Something so emotionally painful, it's making him lose control. When he looks through the targeting sensor and sees those pictures, the laughter seems to mock him. They're at different developmental levels, but, but expressing it the same thing differently. That's like kind of what I'm trying to explain. Mm-hmm. Hence why this prefix is used in all these different words, even though they mean somewhat different things. The psych? Well, that's just, which is the confusing part and what can be so treacherous in terms of talking about this in, in the lay sphere, in the non-academic or psychoanalytical, yeah. <laughs> that word again, world is that you, I mean, I'm, I'm still having a hard time just sort of keeping it all straight just because I don't have the training. Yeah. Um, and I, but because of media, these words are in our nomenclature. They're, they're, yeah. they're around and we, we latch onto them and we make us a lot of associations with them, um, which are mostly, I think, incorrect. But there are also yeah. elements which I think are correct, which is that um, 
psychopathy and violent tendencies, I believe, are often linked together, which is one reason we tend to fear people who are characterized as psychopaths. Um, And maybe we should, (laughs) or at least we should be caution, cautionary around them. But it's 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 fraught because we don't I think many of us don't want to be unfairly prejudiced. the way Ezra Duran Hartworth, <laughs> uh, the Vulcans here, uh, but at the same time we don't want to be foolish and and not um, guard ourselves against uh, potentially real dangers around us. Yeah, I guess you know if we're gonna be linguistic nerds, in addition to all our other nerdum hats for a minute, um, you know, so psy- the prefix psyche mean translates roughly to soul. Pathology mm-hmm. is the study of suffering, you know, pathos, right? Yeah. Pathos. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, one of the classes that I've been taking, I've taken is psychopathology, which my professor has translated to the gathering together of soul through suffering, you know, and when we think about disorders like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, you know, OCD, all these things that we've labeled as pathology those are that's suffering it's like how do you how do you come to understand yourself through suffering you know it is the study of these ill of these psychological illnesses how is this how my consciousness is understanding myself right now so but and when you think about it with sight being a psychopath then the the way you come to understand yourself is by making others suffer. And I think mm. that to me is mm. a real is a way to help me remember it. Whereas psychosis to me that is emblematic of the filter that we normally have over our day-to-day experience. We are not perceiving everything that's happening. If we could, if we, if, if that filter was taken off and we were to like consciously be able to perceive everything that was happening, we would go mad. That's what psychosis is. Mm-hmm. So just the etymology of all those things helps me keep track of them. There's a good lesson in there. Um, and just to bring it full circle, there's th- this idea of the under- understanding of the self through suffering is an incredibly romantic capital R um, notion, uh, which makes sense that because of, as, as we were mentioning, the romantic movement was a precursor in a lot of ways to modern um, psychology, psychoanalysis. Uh, but it's also a precursor to science fiction, which of course is is our Star Trek. And those things connect there. And there's... Uh, this idea, you know, what is drama? What is our understanding of drama? Is It's about, ironically, understanding ourselves by witnessing these others, these fictional others, hopefully, um, go through trauma, suffer, be, be in pain, and then come out of it the other side and take something, take a small piece of that um, experience that we're witnessing and apply it to ourselves in some, in some way. So I... I'm going to get it wrong. I know I am. But in some ways, the the uh, consumption of Star Trek, the consumption of drama, the consumption of the suffering of these fictional characters is a very muted um, form of psychopathy, psychosis. Which one? Which one is it? Psychopathy, right? Because it is the 
um, the, it's, it, it's about the suffering of the other. Admit it. Part of you feels as I do. Part of you wants him to die for what he did. No part of me feels that way. Liar! He has killed, and you know he deserves to die! I have a radical suggestion, Captain. Release the force field, and I'll kill him for you. Release the force field! You know, part of the last little bit of my um, education uh, before I go off into the real world is um, <laughs> I have to write a I have to write a thesis sometime in the next six months. Wish me luck. And I'm writing about attunement and how we are able to empathize and like sync up with other people is the short version of it. And part of what I've learned in just like doing the research for this topic is that when we see someone do something, whether that's someone we're talking to in our day-to-day -day life or a therapist to a client or someone watching a TV show or a play, you know, or like this story, the, most people have this innate mechanism where we have a kind of embodied simulation of whatever it is we're watching. It's a little bit like monkey see, monkey do. So that if, when we watch Ezri and Duran and Chakok and Khan and Kirk and all these characters, in one level of our experience and perception, we know what it's like to be them. You know, it's, it's, it's as if we literally do put ourselves in their shoes so we can feel like what it is like to be them. And that's happening often in a very pre-conscious way, but it's there. And so I, th I think that's part of what the appeal of theater and like watching these shows are. It's because for a minute, we can imagine what it's like to be them and we go through that journey and then it ends and we're back to being ourselves, but we still go through the experience that we're seeing, even if we're not actually actively doing it. Think of the consequence. I'm your mother conscience. That's nonsense. Go in, gaff for the money, and run to one of your aunt's cribs. And borrow a damn dress, the one of a blonde wig. Telling you need a place to stay. You'll be safe for days if you shave your legs with Renee's razor blades. Yeah, but if it all goes through like it's supposed to, the whole neighborhood knows you and they'll expose you. Elizabeth, I know that there is so much that can be said about a topic so rich <laughs> um, for a for a uh, therapist to talk about. Psych psychopaths in Star Trek. I mean, there's we could go on for a long time. Um, so I appreciate. I, I know, like, <laughs> I feel like we said so much, and I barely scratched the surface. I'm like, but no, I didn't talk about this or this or this or ah, can't yeah. do it all. <laughs> we'll we'll revisit these characters. They're they're really. I mean, Suter comes back. Uh, there's more to talk about with Ezri, um, and of course, there's Wrath of Khan, which we'll we'll do on us another special movie night um, at some point. Yeah. But. Uh, in the spirit of uh, the season, which our next episode is going to be uh, airing in very close to Halloween, we're going to take a, a fun divergence away from the sort of the real, <laughs> the, the real scary stuff to the more campy yeah. scary stuff and talk about uh, Trek Devils. So we're going to talk about right. Magic as a Megas 2 and Devils Do and the Bards of the Dead and look at um, depictions of the devil <laughs> or the devils in Star Trek. So I hope um, I hope that sounds fun to you because it, it, it's going to be our little Halloween show. 
All right, I can't wait. Um, does that mean we need to dress up in like costumes and things like that? We'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. Stay tuned for more. <laughs> uh, thank you, as always, for your insight and uh, in- in- incredible knowledge and willingness to pare down this complex stuff for the sake of of me uh, and our audience. I, I really appreciate it. Um, and thank you to our listeners and patrons. As always, comment, like, subscribe, please. And Elizabeth, I will see you next time. See you next time, Elliot. Thank you so much. Thank you.